and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. This is a hard time in American life. More than a few people that I've spoken with this week, people who have the wisdom of a couple of years of life, have said that this time is like no other time that they can remember, not even the chaotic 60s or the the upheaval of the Nixon years felt quite like this. Media outlets blaring baseless accusations of rigged elections, Riots and takeovers of first state capitals and now our nation's capital. This moment threatens the very foundations of our democracy, a democracy already weakened by four years of attacks by a morally disfigured president. I fear that there will be violence this week. I do not know that there will be, but I'm afraid that there will be. Trumpism is emerging as a violent secessionist movement. Even if this week passes, it is not going away. So I ask you this week to pray for the safety of everyone who is in public life. Pray for nonviolence. Bear witness as much as you are able to truth and to decency. Stand up for the the peaceful transition of power as one of the primary expressions of government of, by, and for the people. And as always, do the hard thing. Love your political enemies, even as you contest their vision for the future of our country. What I'd like to ask you to do with me this morning is to take a step away, take a step back from all of this that feels so urgent and ask with me a big question. Ask with me, what does it even mean to say that God is involved in our politics? There is no shortage of religious voices in politics. On the religious left, there are people like Reverends William Barber and Liz Theo Harris who are leading the Poor People's Campaign. On the right, there's a constellation of white evangelicals who are mobilizing the most loyal support for our president. With people of faith claiming God on either side of the political spectrum, how can we, how can we even talk about God in our political life? I have to believe that God cares deeply about our politics. I have to believe that. Politics is the set of agreements that shapes how we conduct our common life. It shapes what and how we will share with each other. It shapes how we treat each other. It shapes what rights we protect for one another and what duties we uphold on one another's behalf. Politics is about what we value in life. It's about where we are headed as a people. All this is the stuff of values. And for those of us who believe in God, religion has to inform our politics. That said, it is always wise to keep in front of us what 
Abraham Lincoln is reported to have said during the Civil War, it is reported that he said, what matters is not whether God is on our side. What matters is whether I am on God's side, for God is always right. God is not a Republican. God is not a Democrat. And if your faith doesn't bring you occasionally, at least occasionally, into conflict with your political party, you are not minding Lincoln's wisdom and you are probably not being faithful to God. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be on God's side? How does God engage in partisan politics? Does God have tendencies? What what kind of clues do we get from the Holy Scriptures about God's political interests? A few years ago, when my preaching group was looking at these questions, we kept coming back to a set of stories from the Hebrew Scriptures in the books of Samuel and Kings. Now, these aren't the most quoted books in Scripture. They're not the most read, but they do tell the story of huge changes in the political life of God's people. In the stories, over the course of just a few generations, the people go from being a loose collection of tribes with decentralized local leaders to being a nation with a capital city and a divinely anointed king. These books tell stories about charismatic leaders and leaders who are corrupted and abuse their power. The books tell stories about what it means for a leader to truly serve the people. Samuel and Kings tell rough and sometimes unvarnished stories about how politics really work. And they also talk about how God might work in our politics. So I'm guessing, uh, I'm just going out on a limb here, I'm guessing that you haven't spent a lot of time in the last couple of days with Samuel and Kings. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to tell you a little bit of that story. Maybe you'll go back and read these books again, but I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story and I'm going to pull out three lessons that I think should inform our political life today. So so let's begin at the beginning. The first political leader that we meet in these stories is Samuel. But even before we meet little Samuel in the third chapter, right as the story is beginning, the story says the word of the Lord was rare in those days and visions were not widespread. Now you could read a lot into that line of scripture. But for the writer, it seems to mean that there was chaos. People were lost without a word and without vision from God. There was profound political corruption. People were afraid and their lives were devolving into lives of narrow self-interest. And so that's when we meet Samuel. He's a boy. He's sleeping on the floor of the temple, training under the priest Eli. As little Samuel sleeps, several times during the night, he hears a voice, and the voice is calling his name. Samuel! Samuel! And it wakes him up. And of course, Samuel thinks it's Eli calling him from somewhere, and he goes to Eli, and Eli says, It's not me. It is the creator of the universe speaking to Samuel, waking him up. God speaks and Samuel listens. And this is the first truth of God's involvement in politics that emerges from these stories. Even in times when the voice of the Lord is seldom heard, God is still speaking. 
part of our discernment about our political life is to figure out to whom is God speaking? Who among all of us seems like they are listening to the voice of the divine? Not just projecting their own needs and desires and calling it God. I don't think this discernment is by any stretch of the imagination easy to do. Sometimes, though, the message gives us clues about the credibility of the messenger. When Samuel is woken up by God, it's not for some anodyne pat on the back. It's not just God saying, I love you, Samuel. You keep being you, just checking on you. God wakes Samuel up so that he can bring a message to his mentor, Eli. And the message is that Eli's days as a leader are numbered. Eli's sons have been stealing the sacrificial offerings for themselves. They are abusing their power for selfish gain under Eli's watch. And Samuel is called by God to bring integrity and bring justice even to his own mentor. So that's our first lesson, right? Listen carefully. Who are the messengers among us talking about justice? Who is seeking by their message to increase the integrity of our leadership and the accountability of leaders to the people? Now, I know what you're saying right now. I know you're, I know you're saying, well, they're all saying they're doing this, right? They're all, all the messengers claim they're doing this very same thing, which is probably true. So stay with me. Let's go on. In the story, God raises Samuel up and makes Samuel a judge over the people. You can imagine Samuel like a circuit-riding judge. He's traveling all across the land, settling disputes and ruling on what is and is not permitted among God's people. And Samuel's good at it. He's a good judge. But here is what is important. This is the second takeaway. There are no perfect leaders in this story. Even the ones whom God has called are not perfect. Every leader in the story has a tragic flaw, at least one, and sometimes many. Those flaws always, always have bad consequences for the people they lead. It turns out in this story that Samuel, just like Eli before him, Samuel has sons who are corrupt and they are unfit to take his place as a leader. And that's devastating personally for Samuel, but it also creates a political crisis for the people. The people panic because the nations all around them, the Philistines especially, are threatening to invade them. If Samuel's sons aren't trustworthy to lead, who's going to lead us? Out of their fear, the people go to Samuel and they demand a king who they believe will make them powerful. That should sound a little familiar to some of us, right? Fear about weakness leading us to seek a strong man who claims he will save us. Samuel takes this demand of the people for a king straight to God. And God listens, and God says, no, 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 no kings. Trust me, God says, you will not like it. Leaders with unlimited power always hurt people. That's effectively what God says to the people. But the people insist. They insist on a king, and eventually God relents. The people get their king. 
Samuel, Samuel's job is to choose the king, and he chooses the, the handsome and charismatic Saul to be the first king of Israel, and the first thing that Saul does is turn his back on God. With, with Saul weeping and begging at Samuel's feet, Samuel removes Saul from the throne. In secret, Samuel has to tap David to be the next king. Saul and David engage in this brutal warfare until finally Saul is defeated. And maybe maybe you're thinking now, well, because you know about King David and you feel like, well, that guy's got a pretty good rep. You think, oh, well, maybe this turns out okay in the end. The answer is yes and no. David is known as the greatest king in Israel, which is, in the big picture, not saying very much. Not only is David tragically flawed, but after David comes Solomon, and from Solomon on, the line of David spirals into a succession of goofballs and megalomaniacs and despots and crooks and worse. So what is the lesson for our political life today? What lesson can we take away? Well, one is that all leaders are flawed. Even leaders with real leadership gifts can end up wasting those gifts for shallow and selfish ends. Power corrupts the best people, but especially the worst. The kings of Israel will cut themselves off from information so they can't possibly know the truth. They abandon God for the sake of lesser gods, wealth, Fame, power, sex, and the people. Like, we're not innocent victims of the whole thing. Sometimes out of our own insecurity, out of our own deep neediness, we demand leaders who will make us feel good about ourselves and not leaders who will help us to be faithful. The story tells us that our proper posture toward all people who hold power, whether it is Donald Trump or whether it is our own beloved state rep, Becky Evans, the proper posture is not worship, but a healthy suspicion. After a time, God will give up on anointing kings altogether, and God starts calling only prophets, people who will stand in the official halls of power and call kings to account for their misdeeds. If you want to trace the trajectory of the house of David all the way through to the end, all the way through to Jesus, you might well conclude that God was right in the first place when the people demanded a king out of their fear and God said no. The kind of king we needed all along didn't have any reason for a throne or for armies. God's greatness is expressed through compassion. God's strength is is expressed through weakness. God's righteousness is conveyed through mercy and God's will is shown through love. It's foolishness for any of us to say that God puts someone into the presidency or any other office. And I don't mean that God doesn't do that or couldn't do that, But it is foolish for any of us to ever move from a posture of healthy suspicion about our political leaders to one of uncritical affirmation. God can use political leaders for good. God always works through flawed vessels. But rarely in Scripture does a leader who is worshipped do anything but harm. Healthy politics 
requires a dynamic tension. Leaders who are conscientious and faithful, who wrestle against the lure of power, and people who hold those leaders accountable when they fail to keep the interests of the people at heart. All right, one more thing. There's one more thing that God does in Samuel and Kings that I want you to see. God acts decisively in these stories to shape our politics, but but God's decisive action often happens through the lives of people who are far outside of the spheres of political power. And mostly because of the way media works in our country, we only ever pay attention in politics to what happens in Washington, D.C., or what happens under the Gold Dome here in Georgia. And we get the impression that those are the only political spaces that matter. But sometimes the most significant political actions that God takes happen far outside those halls of power. Where does Samuel and Kings, this great story about political power and intrigue, begin? Well, I said it begins with Samuel, but that's actually not true. The story begins with Hannah. The story begins with Hannah, a woman who is about as far outside of the political power system as any person you could imagine. That is where God begins this story. And what is Hannah doing? Hannah is praying. Hannah's praying that God would hear her, that God would see her, that God would remember her life. She's praying that God would bless her, and she is praying that God would give her a child that will restore her dignity and her life. That child is Samuel. We know that Samuel grows up to be a good and faithful and influential leader of people. But even after Samuel is born, the writer of the story lingers on Hannah. Hannah goes back to the temple after Samuel is born to thank God for hearing her, for remembering her, and for restoring her dignity. In her prayer, It is Hannah who gives us the clearest sense in this entire story about who God is. We listen to her prayer this morning. Hannah prays, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. There is no holy one like the Lord. No one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by the Lord actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble gird on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven children, but she who has many is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. God brings down to Sheol and raises up. 
The Lord makes poor and makes rich. God brings low. God also exalts. God raises up the poor from the dust. God lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them God has set the world. God will guard the feet of the faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might does one prevail. In the great political epic that is the story in Samuel and Kings, in this time, the story says of political upheaval and fear and unrest. In this time, the story says when the word of the Lord is rare and visions are not widespread, who is it that has the clearest vision of God? It is Hannah. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann writes about Hannah's song that this song becomes a source of deep and dangerous hope in the world wherever the prospect and possibility of human arrangements have been exhausted. When people can't believe promises of rulers, where the gifts of well-being are no longer given through established channels, this song voices an alternative to which the faithful cling. Hannah anchors us in the truth that the most creative, the most impactful, the most important political acts of God take place in private spaces where God speaks and God listens to ordinary people like you and like me, praying for dignity, praying for integrity, praying for blessing. The will of God comes not from the top down, but always from the bottom up. Brueggemann issues this challenge for those who would listen to this story he says, our interpretive responsibility is to see who among us, who among us can join Hannah's daring, dangerous song to this same God who has the power to transform and the willingness to intervene. So we head into this week that lies ahead, a week of great uncertainty. I invite you to go with the lessons from the books of Samuel and Kings. Be suspicious of everyone in power, for power corrupts the best and the worst of our leaders, and they need you to be suspicious of them so as to hold them accountable. Go this week and listen, for God is speaking. Listen to the people who are listening to God as they speak about our common life. Who is seeing the bigger picture? Who is not in political life for the grift, for the gain, for their own ego need? Who is speaking for integrity, for service, for justice, for love of one's fellow people? And three, go into this week praying like Hannah when it seems like the voice of the Lord is seldom heard in the land and visions are scarce, tap into your own direct line of communication with God. 
Never doubt that the creator of the universe might hear your voice, might speak with you, might even use your very life, your very hopes and dreams to bring into the world something powerful and new, not only for your sake, but for the sake of us all. We are at a pivot point in America's life. Our nation's legacy of racism and injustice, a legacy that has long been hiding under the garment of our virtue, has been uncovered. And there are millions of Americans who have identities and fortunes invested in racial hierarchy and systemic inequality, who have said that they prefer that idea to something new. And they are pulling us back into old and familiar ways. But perhaps this is a real turning point, just as it is at the beginning of the book of Samuel. Maybe this is a point in our nation's life at which great changes are, in fact, at hand. Maybe this is a point at which we turn from and repent of our past and we turn toward the mercy and the healing that God offers. We repair harms done for the sake of wholeness. Maybe the idea of liberty and justice for all is not a cruel joke. Maybe it is a divine promise. Maybe beloved community. Maybe beloved community is not a figment of our imagination. Maybe maybe it is the imagination of God that has always been alive. Alive in people like Hannah. And still alive in you. Maybe we ought to remember the voice of the one who was descended ultimately from the house of David, who said the kingdom of God has come near. Maybe God is in our politics after all. Let the people say, amen.